in this entrepreneurial journey, making money is a good thing. That's part of the goal, right? But what should you do exactly with all that money after you've made it? Well, to help answer that question, I've invited on an expert, a financial advisor, Jim Du, to the podcast. Jim is in a mastermind with me, and I quickly figured out that he was a brilliant person, had some conversations with him for my own personal uh, development, and then said, we need to have a conversation on the podcast. So Jim is the CEO and founder of Do Wealth Management. He has 28 years of experience building virtual family offices for entrepreneurs, and is a certified financial planner, chartered financial consultant, and certified private wealth advisor. He's known for speaking, and he shared the stage with influence like Ed Millett, Robert Kiyosaki, and Tim Grover. He's been a guest on podcasts like Entrepreneurs on Fire and Business Lunch, and he's been featured in Inc., Entrepreneur, Huffington Post magazines. And he's the author of a great book, Beyond a Million, The Entrepreneur's Playbook for Expanding Wealth, Freedom, and Time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. If you want to learn, and what Jim's deal is, if you want to learn how billionaires protect their wealth and how we can apply those lessons to us, even if we're hundred heirs or thousand heirs or millionaires, then this is the episode for you. He has a masterful way of taking the complex system of financials and looking at the strategies that the biggest players play by and then distilling them down into things that you and I can do with our businesses to maximize our wealth, maximize our time and our freedom. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Jim Do. Sit back and relax, soak it all up, and enjoy this conversation with Jim Do. Welcome back to the Graham Cochran Show, where each week I'm unpacking the mindset, strategies, and habits of how to build a highly profitable and life-giving business. I'm your host, Graham Cochran, of course. Excited for this conversation. Real quick before we jump in, if you want to make money online in the next 30 days, you need my online income jumpstart guide. It is a 30-day guide to going from zero idea, zero customers, zero product, zero audience, to money in your pocket in 30 days. It is a four-week checklist. It's not a book. It's nothing you have to watch. You can just download it, read it, and then do it. It's going to help you uncover your profitable business idea if you don't already have one. And if you already have one, but you just have not taken action on it, this is going to be the guide that gets you from, I've got a great idea. I'd love to help people with X to actually launching something 30 days from now to prove concept, put money in your pocket, and kickstart your online business journey. It's free, it's easy, it's fast and actionable, and my students are getting a ton of great results off of it, so why not that be you? Just download it at grahamcochran.com slash jumpstart, or if you're watching on here on YouTube, I'll link to it in the description below. grahamcochran.com slash jumpstart for my 30-day online income jumpstart guide. Now let's jump into the episode. Jim, I, I'm excited for this conversation because we're we're getting to know each other. We're in a mastermind together, um, and we were on a call a few weeks ago. I've been reading your book. Um, I'm learning so much. I'm learning so much that I didn't realize I didn't know when it comes to wealth management as a business owner. And so I'm just I'm grateful that people like you exist because you can help us um, 
entrepreneurs, solopreneurs as well, think about how to grow our wealth, manage our wealth. And a lot of the information that's out there, I just feel like is for normal people. And we're not normal if you're an <laughs> entrepreneur. So I'm glad to have this conversation. This will be valuable for my audience. I'm excited too, Graham. I'm, I'm glad the words that you're putting out there and how you're helping people. And so to be any part of that is, is just a, a great joy of mine. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you're an entrepreneur as well. So you, you understand our plight, but like you didn't start out that way. And, and I know you were a teacher. So I, I, like, how do you go from being a teacher to getting into business and then specifically into sort of helping people with their wealth? Like, what was that journey? Yeah, I think because I had no clue how hard it was going to be. Maybe that's how entrepreneurs yeah. like you and me get into it. <laughs> but it's the, the hardest thing you'll ever do and the most rewarding. And so, you know, I was raised by depression era, era parents who grew up very poor. So we never had anything nice. They were super frugal. Uh, so I didn't care about money. So when I got to college, I told a counselor, hey, I'm good at math and science. I just want to make a difference. And I took away from my parents, and this was not what they taught me. It's just what I interpreted that you could either make money in life or you could do good, but you really couldn't do both. So I thought, you know, hey, uh, I don't care about money. I don't want to make any money. I want to make a difference. So the counselor said, you should be a teacher. So I became a public school math teacher out at a high school called Queen Creek High School in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Did that for five years. Loved the kids. Did not like the system. I really felt mm -hmm. and still feel today there's a lot lacking in public education. Uh, so I said, well, what else could I do to make a difference? Well, I found financial services, which involves numbers and helping people. So I jumped into that. Well, four years after that, I realized that's a broken system too. It's really driven by brokerage firms, insurance companies, and, and banks. So my wife, Mimi, and you know Mimi, my amazing wife of, of now 30 years, if you can imagine, three decades. Um, she likes to say if she would have killed me in our first year of marriage, she'd be out of prison by now, but you know, it's <laughs> too late. She can't go back. Uh, anyway, so my amazing wife, Mimi, so her family immigrated from Korea when she was five years old, and she was the oldest. So she was the first to read and write English. So she was in charge of the family business when she was like eight years old, wow. signing lease agreements, managing the checking account that kind of stuff. Wow. And so when I went, came home to her, yeah, crazy. I mean, my wife grew up fast. Uh, and not like my parents, if you were eight and you made a mistake, that's okay, honey, you're eight years old, not in her family. It's like, you're in charge of the family. You've got to make sure you don't make mistakes. Well, anyway, in 1999, I had a huge argument with my manager at this New York brokerage firm. I was in their Phoenix office, went home and I vented to Mimi. And when I finished, she just looked at me and shrugged her shoulders and kind of what I think she was thinking is your, your people have been, your family's been in this country for, you know, two or 300 years and you guys haven't figured it out that the great thing about America is you start your own business. So she just said, start your own company. That's the problem. You're working for all these, in these programs and in these systems that, that you feel are broken because you, you don't want to do it that way. You want to do your own thing. So start your own company. And then I said, honey, I don't think you're listening. I said, banks, insurance companies, brokerage firms, and she said, I have no idea how to do it. I don't know how hard it'll be, but that's your answer. That's what you need to do. And so I kind of had an epiphany and we both realized that we're really entrepreneurs that we're trying to work in these normal systems. So in 1999, struck out, uh, I, I should say boldly uh, struck out on our own and started our own fiduciary firm and hung our shingle and started working and realized we're entrepreneurs. So why don't we specialize and work with people who are like us. And that was a huge distinction in my life. And one thing that I learned in working with entrepreneurs is that actually I was wrong. The more money you make, the more good you can do. Now you can choose not to if you make more money, 
But when you make more money, you can do more good than if you're not making money. No, how, no matter how much it's in your heart, you can move the needle in the world and with, with causes you care about and for people you love if you make more money. So I learned that over time uh, that you can do good and make money. And that's what we try to do. I, I love that. I mean, there's so much of their, you know, mental scripts, the, your sort of your belief system that we inherit from our parents or the, the environment we grew up in. Um, I, I identify with the wanting to do good. I think the word that always came to my mind as a kid was impact. I wanted to have impact. And I thought that would be through my music, make, creating music that people loved all over the world. I imagine myself being famous and traveling the world and people loving the songs and connecting with them. Or I was a theater kid also, and I wanted to be in movies as well. And I wanted to be, you know, create entertainment and, and, and have roles that people identified with and made them feel good impact. But I always figured it's either you're, maybe you're lucky that you could have a job or a career that creates impact and does good in the world and also you get paid well, but that's few and far between. And so you really do at the end of the day have to make a choice. Do I want to do good and volunteer, you know, or have a ministry or, you know, low paying school teacher job. My mom was a school teacher. So I I know that world. Or do I want to go to the path of like have a career where you could make a lot of money, but I feel like it's, it's, it's just self-serving. And I, I, there were so many mental scripts that I've had, and sometimes and still have to deal with because I didn't grow up around entrepreneurs. So like, wh- how hard was that for you to break out of that? Because you, you grew up with depression era parents. That's a big deal. That's a That was a generation that that mental like mode from understanding money was burned in so deep, more than probably any other generation. For sure. And for me, I didn't know any entrepreneurs. No one in my family is an entrepreneur. I feel like I'm that you know, that strange duck that just goes to a different kind of marches to a different drummer, so to speak. And yet my wife only knew entrepreneurship because that's what, you know, her family did as they said, you know, you come to America, you, you start a business and that's how you make it. But as you talk about financial kind of baggage that we all carry from our parents, uh, I would say your listeners, one thing that everyone needs to do is really get clear and aware of what baggage you're carrying from your parents, good and bad. And so in my situation, my dad taught me money is hard to make in America. So when you make it, you've got to save it. Now, my dad was not a good investor. He was a great saver because he wanted to put it in CDs. He wanted to put it in the bank. Uh, but he was a great saver because he believed with his all his heart that money is hard to make in America. And when you make it, you got to save it. On the other hand, my father-in-law, my wife Mimi, her dad, he said, this is America. It's easy to make money in America. Anybody can make money in America. And when you make money, because it's easy to make, you spend it, you enjoy it. And so her dad never saved. And, you know, ultimately we're probably going to have to support my mother-in-law at some point because her her father passed away about 13 years ago. But at any rate, he didn't believe you needed to save because America's easy, easy to make money. So if you think about these two people, Mimi and I coming together, where I've got the money is hard to make, and when you make, you got to save it. And she's money is easy to make. And when you make it, you got to spend and enjoy it. And so that was kind of these two different worlds that we had to figure out. And the good news is we tried to take the best of both worlds. So I got her to be a way better saver. And she got me to be a way bigger, better spender because it, had it been up to me, we'd still be in our little home in Gilbert, Arizona and, and not enjoy the place we live, not enjoy the vacations we take, not do the things that really make life rich. Mm-hmm. 
But on the other hand, having the security, having saved and invested all these years to know that you have that backstop, that's really powerful too. And I try to tell young people that it feels great to go buy something that's cool, a purse, a pair of tennis shoes, whatever, a car. That's fun for the moment. But in the long run, there's something that's also really fun. And that's when you see your investment accounts, your assets growing and your net worth growing. There is an excitement to that. There's a power in that that you can't really understand uh, when you haven't been there. And that's something, you know, in the future. So I always say you got to feed your present self, but you also have to feed your future self because eventually your future self is going to look back to your present self and go, man, you really messed up. You had all that money you made and here we are with yeah. nothing to show for it. And the tennis shoes have been given away and the purse has been given away and the car has been sold. So those are the two things you got to balance because if you're like my dad that never does anything for your future self, then I think you miss out on a lot of life. Yeah. No, that, that's so good, man. It's I, I love, I always feel like couples that come together, maybe it's because we're always drawn to the opposite, but like there's always a spender, there's always a saver. And, and you usually, if you, if it's healthy, if it's unhealthy, you'll fight. If it's healthy, you'll, you'll merge together and, and take the best of both worlds. Um, I think, so in, investing is really, really powerful, right? And I, I've, I've, I'm helping people, we're building businesses over here, focusing on creating cash flow, passive income online, all that kind of stuff. And that's fun. Um, and I know there's a movement in entrepreneurship that's like bet on yourself, like your best investments always in your own business, which I understand the concept there. But I also, I think if I have enough wisdom and humility to know I could get it wrong or I could screw something up or my, the market forces could change and my business could fall apart. So if I'm only betting on myself and only investing in myself, it's not really wise. And so I'm always trying to encourage my students to like build the business and then with the, the overflow, because if you build the business right, especially in this type of digital business, the profit margins are incredible. There's a lot of you know low overhead, so you can create some profit quickly, enjoy it, you know, and then and save it for the future, but also invest it so that like you're investing in maybe other businesses as well through stocks or through, you know, actually partnerships or through, you know, you could do private equity, other things, but like take some of that money out of your business so that it's diversified into something else, real estate, um, because I don't want to bank on just myself. Can you talk about maybe yeah. some of that, the as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, you know that like you're always confident in your own business, but you also need to invest outside of it and have other vehicles to grow that money. Yeah. Well, you get rich in America by, by being concentrated in a business. In fact, uh, CEG Worldwide years ago said that 95% of seriously rich, rich Americans, which would be by their definition, Americans who have more than $20 million of liquid net worth, that would be seriously rich, 95% of them owned a business. So owning a business is the most predictable way to get seriously wealthy. But to stay seriously wealthy, you need to invest in a whole bunch of things. You can't be concentrated like that. So you need to be concentrated to get wealthy, but be diversified to stay wealthy. And over time, because a lot of times entrepreneurs bet on a huge exit, they're going to have this big ex exit and sell their company. But statistically, more often than not, those exits don't happen and they don't happen in the way entrepreneurs think they're going to happen. So it's great to have a future exit plan because you need that for things like tax planning and asset protection. That should happen years in advance. But you also want to have the ability to build wealth outside of your company because I think in my book, I actually talk about two money-making machines. One is your business 
And that will print money when you have your business clipping along and running well, that will print money faster than any way you can invest in your life. But it takes your time, it takes your energy, it takes your creativity and your focus. The other money-making machine is building money up, like you said, in stocks and real estate and private equity and these different areas that are diversified. And once that machine has the capability to print as much money as you need to live off of, and by the way, that machine is easy. It doesn't take your time and creativity and, and your focus, right? That's much easier. I shouldn't say it's easy. It's much easier. You still have to pay attention to your investments, but it's much easier than running a business. And it can run without you. So if you take six months off, that that machine should still be printing money. Once you have that, now you have true freedom because whether your business makes money or not or fails or you have a big exit, you always have that other printing machine. And getting toward that, moving toward that is really what true freedom is. It's not just having a great business that prints a bunch of money because even though entrepreneurs, and I think this about myself, I think my business has no risk. I have a great business. I know how to run my business. But my business has way more risk than Apple or IBM or yeah. ExxonMobil. And yet those companies go out of business. You know, we've seen many big, big companies go out of business in the last 10 years. So no business is, is completely safe. But as a business owner, you want to start thinking about building up that other pot of money. And that'll also like make you help you make better business decisions because when you have to have the income from the business, you may make dumb decisions just under that stress rather than making the right ones because you have the security and the backup of the other funds. That, so that is huge. Like the, the, that's like the phantom power of having assets outside of your business is the, the lack of pressure. It's like a release valve, a pressure release valve. And I a hundred percent agree because the secret to us doing well in business is to be able to make wise decisions. And I feel like when there is pressure nine times out of 10, in my experience, I make dumb decisions. Yep. And so I want to relieve the pressure so that I have the freedom to, let's say on a small level, right? When you're, if you're starting out freelancing or you're coaching and, and, and you haven't officially got the, the business more passive yet, but you're doing the work, you're saying yes to every client that comes. But if you have some cash reserves or you have some other assets, you don't have to say yes to every client, which allows you to pick better clients or, or allows you to you know, just make smarter decisions long-term. Like maybe I could package up my knowledge in a course or something that's more, you know, passive and automated. And so I don't have to trade my time for dollars, but when you need the money, it's just hard to do the things that don't pay off in the short term, but pay off in the long term. And so, man, that, that pressure is, is, it's like a poison to your business. Um, and I just love that you tied it in to like, how make it easier on yourself so to start you know long term moving money out of your business and building up these assets so that it only gets easier over time there's less pressure 100% and the other thing i would also say is you know there's something that that we have coined and that's the term make rich real and every entrepreneur every business owner every one of your listeners should spend some quiet time and think about what makes rich real for you and for some entrepreneurs it's having 20,000 a month of passive income from my investments. When I get to that point, Rich will be real for, for me. Mm. I've heard that before. Or, you know, when I can give a million dollars to the charity that I love so much, then Rich is real to me. Or when I know that my great-great-grandkids are going to have opportunity because of what I did, Rich is real to me. So whatever that is for you, being very clear on that will be a compelling focus that pulls you forward. Because 
as entrepreneurs, we're always pushing and grinding and, and that gets tough and you can get burnt out. But if you have a compelling focus about your future and about what makes rich real for you, then that can pull you forward. The other thing that does is it takes the focus off the material stuff because you know what they say, either you own things or things own you. And a lot of times when people start having success and making money, they start buying all these things because they feel good when they do it. They feel successful. They feel important. But the problem with that is if you don't manage that appropriately, then that starts to be the end game. And then you can never back off of it, you know, and, and then these things are owning you and that prevents you from changing directions in the business. It prevents you from seeing the stuff that matters, the people you love, the relationships you care about, all those things get missed when you're just focused on the material. Plus you create a lifestyle that is only sustainable when your oper your business is operating at the highest level. And as you know, and I know, businesses go through their seasons. And so you may be crushing it this year and next year might not be as good. And if you're always way below, you know, spending way below what you make, you have that cushion and that comfort level and you don't start to freak out. Because when people, they tie their identity to the stuff instead of the vision about what makes Rich real for me, uh, then that's a dangerous place and I don't want people to be there. Yeah, I love that concept and I think it's important to define. Um, and it does take a moment. Like We probably think, well, I, I know what it is. Like, hmm. but, but have you stopped to think and, uh, and write it down? It doesn't become real for me unless it's written down on a Google Doc somewhere or a notebook somewhere. Uh, and, and it's interesting because I've also challenged students to um, think also about how much time they want to spend working. Um, so not just the money currency, but the time currency, how much of your time do you want back? Um, and everyone's got a different amount. You know, I, I in my, my six figure coaching community, it's, it's one of the, like the final stage I'm trying to help my students get to is you're earning, you know, 10 K plus a month, um, in that community is the goal, but only working 20 hours a week or less. So it's, you don't, you don't win the game in that community as it were, if you're, if you're making it gamifying it until you've got both of those in place. Yeah. Um, it, because for me and the people that tend to be drawn to that community. They value not just money, but time freedom. And so that's just an example of, of like you said, what does it mean to you and get specific. And unless you do that, you will get caught up in like, uh, you figured this out, the more successful you become, like it becomes so weird. Like what, am I gonna be happier with an extra million dollars? Like. I don't, and then, and then you see other people like we joined, we joined the, you know, the same mastermind this year. And like, I'm, I'm talking to some of the people in this group. I'm like, oh my gosh, I thought I was crushing in life. But these, this person's really crushing it. So is mom, now my goalpost has just moved a little further along. But I, I know like I'm not going to be any happier when I hit that. Like I was thought I was happy just a second ago until I met this guy. <laughs> so yeah. Well, we're comparison machines, right? We're constantly comparing oh. ourselves to others. And, and that's why you have to be grounded on what makes rich real for you. And one distinction yeah. I want to add, because I loved what you said about also putting in time as, you know, what kind of time do you want available? And I just give one little distinction to that is what are you going to do with that time? Yes. Because I've met entrepreneurs that they go, Hey, I want to get my business to run itself. And then they do, and they don't know what to do. They have all this free time and then they get depressed and then they throw themselves back in the business, just finding stuff to do that they don't need to do. So I would just say, think about how you want to spend that time. So is it travel? Is it time with your kids? Is it a hobby? Is it starting a new hobby? You know, in fact, I remember I talked to a guy years ago and he had retired and we we're just having a casual conversation. And I said, how's retirement? 
And he said, I love retirement. It's the greatest thing ever. And by the way, I'll never retire. Most of our entrepreneurs don't even think of that word as a word that means anything. But this guy had done like a traditional thing, worked a job for so many years, you know, retired at 62 or something like that. And he was telling me how much he loves retirement. And I said, gosh, how are you achieving that? And he said, well, in the beginning, I was terrible at, at, at being retired. I said, what do you mean? He said, I had no plans. I had no hobbies. I just was bored. So I realized I got to do something. So he started doing these things. So he took and and learned, I think it was Italian. So he learned a language. Mm -hmm. And then he said, ah, you know what? I've always wanted to play guitar. So he started playing guitar. He started taking lessons and playing guitar. And then he said recently, he thought, you know what? I'd like to play ice hockey. And I said, had you ever ice skated before? He goes, no. So he learned how to ice skate. And now he's on this ice skating team that he said, they're in like the lowest, the worst league, but he just loves it. And once a week yeah. he goes out with these other guys and he plays hockey. So I guess the point is, you know, think about how you're going to spend your time. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how you're going to spend your time, fill it in with something that sounds interesting and cool. Because if you just say, I'm going to work 20 hours a week, that's great. But how are you going to fill in the other time? Otherwise you end up watching TV or Netflix or doing stuff that's just not very fulfilling. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good, good call there. And if, Fun little rant is uh, I sometimes like to pick on the um, the fire movement, the financial independence, retire early movement. Um, I like to joke on them sometimes because they are all, typically they're in a, a nine to five job, and so right they're over saving, saving fifty to seventy percent of their income, which is remarkable. And then yeah. you know within in their mid thirties, they're retiring. They have enough you know assets that are printing money that they could sustain their super usually very frugal lifestyle. So there's usually two problems with that. One is like. By the time you're in your 30s, you probably don't want to keep living that super frugal lifestyle, especially if you get married and have kids, you realize that that kind of only worked when I was single. But second <laughs> of all, I find that most of them then start a YouTube channel or they start some kind of blog or some kind of online business. And like now I'm freed up to like start a business. And I'm like, you know what? You could have started a business 10 years ago. You didn't have to yep. wait. It's like you're not really retired. You just transitioned out of employment to yes. self-employment, doing something you actually are excited about, which is great. I'm happy for you, but you don't have to wait 10 years to do that. Yeah, you can I agree. do that today. Anyway, uh, my, everyone listening to this is like, yes, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I, I want to get into the book in a second, but real quick, like on a practical level, let's just say mm -hmm. I, I'm my business is, is starting to work. And and let's say it's even just doing like five or six thousand dollars a month and I'm doing the online course thing and and my bills are a little bit less than that. So I do have some extra that I could set aside. Mm -hmm. What would be a baby step for for an entrepreneur to start thinking about where should that extra money go if it's overwhelming to me to even begin thinking about like investing or, you know, like people get scared about this stuff. Yeah, they do. And I think in the beginning, especially, you want to automate it because anything you have to think about is going to be more challenging, especially if it's an area you haven't really, you don't have a lot of experience in. So when it comes to investing, don't overthink it. So I always like to say, if you're making money, spend, uh, you know, whatever you can save, whatever it is, if it's 50 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month, automate that. So set up an account where if 50 or 100 bucks or 200 bucks a month is just going into that account and investing. And you can invest in just, you know, a stock index or something like that, anything. It's probably not enough to invest in, in real estate, uh, although you can buy real estate derivatives like real estate investment trusts and ETFs that invest in real estate. But just automatically put that into something and just let it happen every month and do not stop. Then here's what Mimi and I did. Every December, we would sit down, and here's the question I would pose to Mimi, and you know about the history, right? So I would say, how much more 
are we going to save and invest next year than we save and invested this year? And then we would change that number and then automate that. Mm. Because if it's not automated, here's what happens to all of us. When I have a bunch of extra money in my account, right? the more money you make, if you're not paying attention where that money is going, you're going to get promiscuous with your money. We all do mm. it. Because when I have money in my account, then I see cool stuff and I'm like, shoot, I could just write a check and buy that thing, even though I know no one writes a check anymore, but sure. I could just I could just pay for that thing. Uh, so I make it automated because the one thing that most people never do is they never miss a mortgage payment. They never miss a car payment, but they I meet lots of people that go years and years and years and they don't invest. Mm -hmm. So make it like a payment. So it's automatically going in there. And then ideally, as you make more money, if you do this simple equation, so let's say you're making five grand a month, you're only saving $50 a month, right? That's not a ton. But then when you make more, spend half, save half. If you get into that habit, then when you're doing 10 grand, 20 grand, 30 grand a month, now you're going to be saving a super large amount of money. And by the way, some of that could be reinvested in your business. It doesn't all have to go into outside investments. But as you're investing, if you said, hey, here, here's a huge opportunity that I could invest in, you also have the money there. You also though want to be careful about pulling the money out to do silly things. Just make sure it's really good reason if you're going to pull money out. But automate those investments. Start with something simple so you don't overthink it and get started. Because the main thing is getting started on investing. Yeah, building the habit. Yeah, normalizing it. I love that. And I, I as thinking about that because I, I was a good saver an automated investor when I had a salary, but then when I started to work for myself and I had irregular income and really growing income, which is a good problem, but not knowing what to make, that, that's when it broke down for me. So I was like, so would you recommend someone like us with you, you make a commitment at the end of the year for what you're going to just do every month for the next year, no matter Absolutely. what, and then you'd reassess annually? Absolutely. Yep. And you know, maybe it's not, maybe you say, boy, my last four months, I could have saved 5,000 a month. I wouldn't do that. I would say, okay, what do I know I can commit to? So instead of, because sometimes people get overexcited and they're like, hey, I've, I've got 5,000 extra a month the last four months. I'm just going to guarantee, I'm just going to automate 5,000 a month for the next calendar year. Yeah. But then what happens if you run out of money or you get tight, then it stresses you out or then you have to go back and feel like a failure and like, okay, I got to drop that down from five to three. So I'd start with a number that you know you're going to hit, especially in the early years. So you go, okay, I'm saving 5,000 a month the last four months. I'm going to do 3,000 a month. I'm going to lock that in for the next 12 months. And then if I have extra, I can sweep it over, do something else. Because you want to build success on top of itself as an investor so you get the confidence. And, you know, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about the current environment and what's going on with investing in general. Because yeah. I see a lot of mistakes, not in the necessarily in what people are doing, but how they're thinking about it. Because how you think about things impacts what you do about those things and what you do then impacts your results in the future. So let's talk about what, like, what are some of the mistakes you're seeing people make in investing, at least usually probably always, but especially right now in this current environment. Yeah. The, the, one of the biggest mistakes that I see, especially successful business owners make, and this is what I would say in a very kind and loving way, you're not that smart. And what I mean by that is I say this to myself, Hey Jim, you're not that smart because I made a mistake in 2005, so that was what, about 18 years ago, when I thought I knew everything there was to know about investing, I made a mistake and made an investment that lost me and Mimi a million dollars. Now, a million dollars today is worth a lot, but think about how much a million dollars was worth 18 years ago and what we could have done 
with that money, right? Um, at any rate, the the reason I made that mistake is because I thought I was so smart. I thought I had all this stuff figured out. And I see a lot of business owners, especially when you have success, you start to think you're smart in all these different areas. Most of us can't be brilliant investors. Most of us are not Warren Buffett. Most of us are not those people that can do those things. But that doesn't mean you can't have tremendous success. So often I see business owner entrepreneurs thinking that they can figure all this stuff out, time the markets, know when to get in, know when to get out, buy something that nobody is thinking about, and then they get rich. You know, and, and even in the crypto space, right, we had Anchor Protocol where I had a lot of friends of mine lost millions of dollars in Anchor Protocol. And when I'd have conversations with them, and these are very smart crypto people, they said, look, why would I put money anywhere else when I can get 20% a year in this safe account called Anchor Protocol? And I just said, boy, I don't know. In all my financial years, I didn't know of anything that could do 20% a year that was you know, completely stable and safe. And sure enough, it turned out that Anchor Protocol wasn't as safe as we thought it was. My point is this, is trying to outthink everybody and have some special result. That's what you do in your business. That's where you have your own skill set, your own business, the things you control, a unique offering that nobody has. That's where you can use that secret sauce. But out there in the world, you and I don't know anything about real estate or about stocks or about the war in the Ukraine or about inflation or about the Fed. You and I there's nothing anyone knows that someone else doesn't know. All of that information is everywhere. And so to think that you're going to somehow game the system in that way, I would say you're probably not. But what it really does is it either allows business owners or, or it gets them to either leave too much in cash for too long because we know over long periods of time, cash is one of the, the very worst investments unless it's for emergency reserves like a backstop or unless it's because you know a certain opportunity that you're looking for. So let's say you're a private in buying uh, an, an expert in buying businesses. And you go, hey, when I see the right business, I know how to buy it. Then you might want to have a lot of cash sitting there, you know, losing to inflation every year, but it's sitting there for the opportunity. But I see business owners that have a lot of cash. They don't know what they're doing. They just feel good when they can see all that cash. But that's not a good long-term strategy or a good long-term investment. So one thing is get invested. Get invested in real estate. Get invested in stocks. Get invested in, in other businesses if you're good in, in that space or if you have good contacts for private equity rather than overthinking it and trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, that's the, the main thing. And in fact, uh, an analogy I like to use is if you had a dollar on January 1st and that doubled to $2 on January 2nd and that doubled to $4 on January 3rd and it kept doubling on January 31st, any idea how much money you'll have? It's a lot. Ooh, yeah. Compounding interest, man. I don't know. Some crazy you, number. What is it? You made the billionaire's club. You'll have 1 billion, $73,742,000. But here's the, the real lesson to take away from this. If you would have waited one week, you just said, I don't know, things look scary, whatever. If you waited one week on January 31st, you'd only have $8.3 million. Wow. You have 99% less money. And by the way, just to hit the point home, when I used to teach math, I would, kids didn't understand and adults too, the difference between something like a million and a billion. So I'd ask my kids, how long for a million seconds to go by? The answer is about 11 days. So I'd say, I don't know, can you remember what you were doing 11 days ago? I can, you know, probably I can look at my calendar or I can probably remember kind of what I was doing 11 days ago. How long for a billion seconds to go by? 32 years. Wow. 32 years. Mimi and I were dating 
went a billion seconds ago. That's why when you talk about the government spending a trillion, it gets really scary. But, <laughs> at, but at any rate, so that's the difference between 8.3 million and 1 billion 73 million. So the key is get started and invest consistently over time. That's the magic more than it is. I've got the perfect investment or I got the perfect real estate deal. Yes, look at the investments. Yes, you need to consider everything going on out there. But I see too many people overthinking it and not just getting invested, especially if you're early to the game. If you had $10 million, you sold your company, that was all the money you will ever have. Then I'd be careful about just throwing it all into something. But on the other hand, if you're adding more money every year, forget about it. Don't worry about the fluctuations and the volatility. That's going to happen with any investment that goes up, but just get started. I love that. I think the, the million seconds, billion seconds is just a great visual of the difference. And then, yeah, the time is your, is your asset. Um, and then the consistent investing, regular investing can really help you ride out the ups and downs. And, and I, I think, I think this is one of the hardest things when it comes to investing is, and you hit the nail on the head is you get confident in one area of your life. Let's say your business does well. You just, you think it's almost like the, no offense to Michael Jordan. You think like, because I was good at basketball, I'm going to be great at, at baseball. Yeah. And it's like, no, I should have gone back to basketball. And then you continue to crush, but it's like, you're not even the smartest, even the people who they're excellent at investing. And that's what they went to school for. And that's what they do all day long. Even they can't predict the future well enough consistently. Um, so what's to think we're going to be able to do that with even less information or time to review the information. Um, and there's so many asset classes and also maybe thinking long-term versus short-term, right? Like I've always, I've never had a hard time investing in the sense of like, you know what, housing prices, real estate's going to go up and down, but long-term it's going to go up. Like it's, it's like the old idea. And I forget who said it. You might know the, 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 the kid with the yo-yo on the escalator. Like if you're looking at the stock price, that's the yo-yo going up and down, but really you should look at the whole kid on the escalator. It's going up over time. It'll all be up stocks, real estate, things get more expensive. And so it's like the looking at it daily will just drive you nuts and make you make stupid decisions. But looking at the long term, you're going to regret not having been in the market. And you don't know what day is going to be the big day or when the, the big real estate boom is going to happen. What year? Oh, I missed out on last year. So now I'm trying to get into real estate, but maybe I, all the gains were last year, you know, so you just don't know. So right. get in the game and stay in the game. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it, what, one of the things that's really cool about what you do, right, is you help entrepreneurs build out kind of like the way billionaires do it with these family offices where they've got, and this is a concept that I didn't even know anything about until like the last year or so. I was like, what is a family office? It doesn't, it sounds so generic. Like, like, is it like a building like people go to and, like, <laughs> and, and, and they meet there and there's a family, whole family meetings. But this, you know, this idea that billionaires have a lot of money on the line. Um, and, and so they're willing to invest a lot of money to have a team, a very diverse, but in specific team manage their wealth strategically and all the things around it. So can you explain just basically family office concept and then, and then dumb it down for us in terms of like how we need to think about building what you call in your book, this financial dream team over time and how that's actually more approachable for normal people like us than we think. Sure. I heard about the term long time ago, this family office term, it was before anyone was throwing it around. And I thought, that's really interesting. That's the structure that billionaires use. I want to learn more. So I started asking around my network. I've always had a good network. And just by random chance, I got introduced 
by a good friend of mine to the grandson of a New York billionaire. And we hit it off. We were the same age. And he said, hey, Jim, if you want to fly to New York, I'll get you a meeting with the CEO of our family office. Uh, but if you want to meet my grandfather, I don't know, I can make that happen. You know, he's not even really involved in the day to day anymore. And I go, no, no, I want to meet with your CEO. Uh, so I flew out there. And, and my definition of a family office, by the way, is when a billionaire hires all the needed tax, legal, insurance and investment professionals, all the attorneys and accountants as full time employees working for that one billionaire and his or her family. So I fly to New York have breakfast with this guy that was really old. He was in his 60s, and now that doesn't seem as old to me today. <laughs> and and we had breakfast that turned into about a three-hour breakfast. And at the end, he said, gosh, Jim, you know what? If you want to stay for a few days, you're really interested in this stuff, I'll kind of show you what we do. So I did, and I had all these notes. And on the flight home, it just struck me like a lightning bolt. I thought, you know what? That's not just the best structure for a billionaire. That's the best structure for any entrepreneur. But there's one problem. You need about $400 million before you can build, afford to build and run one. So the billionaire family office I know best, I think they have 47 CPAs in their tax department. So, I mean, you can do the <laughs> math on how expensive these things are to build and run, wow. but they're worth it. That's why Oprah has one and Gates and Bezos and uh, Sarah Blakely. They all have these family office structures because they're worth it, even though they're expensive. So I thought, gosh, you know what? First of all, selfishly, Mimi and I don't have $400 million. I'd like to do that for us. And then maybe there's a way to do that for our entrepreneurs. So that's what we set out to do. And the way we made it affordable is every entrepreneur over their lifetime, they pick up an accountant, an attorney, an insurance agent, a banker. They get these different professionals. And if you picture those like spokes on a wheel, and I've got it hanging behind me, if you picture all those professionals like spokes on a wheel, they're usually not all A players. They're not talking to each other and collaborating to get the best results. No one's holding them accountable. But the worst part is the entrepreneur is in the middle of that wheel managing those relationships when the, when the entrepreneur does not speak the languages of tax, legal, insurance, and investment. So we like something we call the functional wealth wheel. That's where all the professionals are A players. They're all being held accountable. They're all collaborating. But then you've got a firm in the middle managing that team for you, similar to the family office structure. Now, there are two steps to that. And that is, I always say that every entrepreneur they're in one of four characters. So they're either the ostrich, the juggler, or the air traffic controller, or the family office, right? Which is really where you want to be eventually. So the the ostrich is the ignore and avoid. I'll get to that later. I, I don't need to worry. I don't want to worry about all this legal and tax stuff. I don't understand it. It's easy to be the ostrich, and the results are almost always poor. Then there's the juggler, who's the entrepreneur that's trying to handle all those things himself or herself. And the, the juggler will say, yeah, you know what? I'm dropping balls. I know I'm probably making mistakes. I'm doing the best I can because it's hard to be the juggler. And just like the ostrich, you get poor results. But then the step above that before you get to the family office is the air traffic controller. And this is where you build that dream team. You have excellent professionals in all those areas. They're collaborating. You have to manage the team, so it does take effort to get there. But that's when you're at a point before you can actually hire a firm to build and run it for you. You've got to be the air traffic controller. I identify with, for sure, the ostrich. That was me for years. Um, it, it just overwhelmed me. Like, even, even I didn't hire an accountant for 
three or four years, even a bookkeeper. I just, I just was like, I, I don't, it just made me nervous for some reason. And then when I hired one, it only reinforced my fear because they speak a language. CPAs speak a language that I don't understand. And I had read a lot of books about accounting to, to try to understand some of the terms. I'm like, I feel like I'm a smart person, but I feel so dumb sitting in a meeting talking to you. Um, and so I identify with the ostrich and then I moved to the juggler. This is an interesting language because I, I've, for years then been like bouncing between the different people and 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 not knowing even how to hold them accountable to higher standards what should i even expect of my cpa or what should i even expect of uh the bankers that i interact with and so i'm like i guess this this is what i get because that's what they're giving me you know yeah and and again because you're stepping into the air traffic controller there's going to be a learning curve and ultimately it's just like anything else ultimately you're eventually like in your company you're eventually going to want to have a coo eventually you're going to want to have a house manager you know you're not always going to want to mow your lawn you're going to get to a point so when you can afford to have a firm with all the expertise run the team for you that's the ideal thing but before you get there there are things that you can do so let me just take the accountant because taxes as you make more money, taxes are going to be your biggest expense. And managing that correctly is really important. So when you work with an accountant or a CPA, you have to make them engage with you because they have all these tax returns that they're doing. And yours is probably not going to be a priority unless you make it a priority. And it's okay if you have to pay extra to get some time with them. And so everyone should be asking a CPA, if you're interviewing your CPA, or if you have a CPA, you should be asking your CPA, What's your philosophy on tax saving strategies? What are tax saving strategies you like to use with your clients? Name me three that you did with some clients last year that might apply to me that would make a big difference in my tax situation. All right, so start asking those questions. And I would say every year, here's what happens. People, they get all their 1099s, they get all their, if they're, if they're still working, they get W-2s, whatever they get or if they're a S corp owner, owner S corp uh, employee, right? And then they give it to the accountant and they go, whew, I'm glad I got all that stuff together. And then the accountant says, here's the tax return, sign it and I'll send it in, whether it's after extension or not. People go, oh, whew, okay, made it through another tax season. You're missing an opportunity. I'd say what you need to do is, remember, CPAs and accountants are so busy from you know today through you know April, through the tax deadline, but then their time frees up you know, in May and June and around that time. So I'd schedule an appointment every year with your accountant. If you're the air traffic controller, you don't have a firm doing it for you. And I would sit down with my accountant and say, okay, walk me through the tax return. Show me what things we did to save in taxes. Help me understand what we could maybe do going forward this year. So it's kind of a, what did we do? What worked? What didn't? And what's next? It's just like anything in life, right? If you if you present on a stage, afterwards you're going to say, okay, what worked, what didn't, what next, how can I improve? That's a natural thing. But we don't do it with tax returns because everyone's flipped out like, oh, I don't understand this thing. This thing is so confusing. Force them to kind of walk you through it. Uh, so that should be the first step. And then tax planning should start there. So I would say around early summer, definitely after you have six months of P&L, so in July. And then you want to do a second tax planning near the end of the year, October, November-ish, uh, depending on if you're doing simple or complex tax planning. If it's more complicated, September, October. If it's less, November is, is time enough. Uh, and then really you'll be more dialed in with what your accountant's doing and you'll have a better feel for, are, is this accountant actually growing with me? Because I outgrew my accountant. I had the same accountant that took care of me when I was a school teacher when I was an entrepreneur with a business that was doing more than a million dollars revenue. 
that was a problem. And I only figured it out by learning about all these things you could do with tax planning that I didn't learn through my traditional education, through my MBA or all the stuff I did in finance. And I also wasn't hearing about it from my CPA. So that that's kind of a lesson. But that way you can hold that person accountable. Same thing with every other profession or every other professional. With your renewal on your auto and home insurance, make sure an agent, whether on the phone or in person, walks you through your policy. Why do we have these coverages? Tell me how the, what those things mean. It seems like you know, you'd rather go to the dentist than do yeah. that, but the benefits long-term are gonna be tremendous. So just start with one professional, don't overwhelm yourself, and start to get into a little bit more of a groove of understanding. And by the way, if you become a good air traffic controller, when you hand it off to the family office structure, you're still going to be much better off because you'll have a better feel for all these things and it'll be easier for that firm to build that family office structure and to have you setting the vision because you'll understand some of the mechanics that need to go on year to year and, and month to month. Yeah, I love that. And I, th I think that's a practical place for people to start is maybe looking at their their tax um, person, whether it's a CPA or, or if you don't have one, get one and and I will say I made the mistake of just hiring somebody either through a recommendation from someone who's not an entrepreneur uh, and, and I'm, I've missed out and I've, I've gone through a few of them. And I'm, as Jim, you know, like I'm looking for a, a new CPA right now, interviewing them. But the, the, the great thing is if you're moving from I'm a, a W-2 employee in the U.S., I work a job for somebody else um, and then you work for yourself. That's great and exciting, but what you've just stepped into is really actually more exciting than you realize. As an entrepreneur, the tax code is so much more favorable for you, and there's so many more things available to you as an entrepreneur that you don't know unless you start to do this research, and so you want a, a professional who who's trying to save you money. This is legal, by the way. This is like the, the government has said these are the things you can do, so to not pursue those is to literally give the government more money than you are supposed to, and that's dumb. <laughs> that makes no sense. So I, anyway, I think... I think part of that is just we come from an employee mindset, so we don't even know that there's major tax benefits to being an, uh, an entrepreneur, because they are. That's the whole point. The tax code is written for investors and, and, and entrepreneurs in a way. Yeah, and you know when you think about tax planning, as you said, the business owners have all the opportunity for, business, for tax planning. I have a friend who's a corporate executive for a, a publicly traded company, and her income, she makes more than a million dollars a year, it shows up on line seven of the tax return on her W-2. And she was asking me, like, what can I do to save on taxes? And I'm like, start your own business, because it's so hard when it's that place on the tax return. If you've got a, a, an 1120 or a Schedule E or a Schedule C, there's so much more you can do that's legal in the tax code to save on taxes. And the other thing, as you start growing, here's what you're going to find about accountants. Accountants, there, there's two things in any professional that you want balance, risk and opportunity. And guess what? Accountants are worried way more about risk than opportunity. So sometimes you have to push your accountants to look at different avenues that are legal where you could save more money in taxes. On the other hand, sometimes I see entrepreneurs and they hire a, I'll put in quotes, a tax strategist. And you have to be careful in that area because sometimes those people, they're trying to sell life insurance. They're trying to push different tax planning strategies where they're getting paid to bring these strategies in. So their incentives are not aligned and they're not fiduciaries. So they don't have any legal standard. They're salespeople, but they sound great because they have all these exotic ideas that your accountant didn't know about. Now you're way on the opportunity side and no one's managing the risk. And ultimately, that's what a family stru office structure does is make sure that all the professionals are finding all the opportunities and also balancing the opportunities with the risk and how that's being managed. 
So much to think about. I love it. Oh, man. There's a million other questions I could ask you, but I know we're pressed for time. So real quick, we have a segment on the show that we do called the Golden Rule segment. And mm. it's it's pretty simple. You know, you've lived life. Imagine you've taught your kids so much, everything you want them to know. And they they forget it all. They forget it all except for one, one thing, one piece of advice, one word of wisdom. Mm. What would be that one thing that you would want them to remember? Wow, boy, there's so many things I could say there. The one thing, the one thing that I would want anyone that I could impart wisdom to, I, I would say, well, that's such, I have so many that I would I want to say, but what comes to mind is, you know, and I think that actually one of your other podcasts, you said this, and I think that the quote is Bill Gates, which is people underestimate what they overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate and what they can do in 10 years. And I think too often people don't embrace their dreams, either because other people think they're frivolous uh, or because they just don't believe they can do it. And, and the thing is, everyone listening to this call, you're capable of way more than you think. And this is your aspirations for giving back, for doing good, for having great life experiences. Crafting the life that you want, it's just making the time frame long enough and then breaking down the little steps to get there. And so a friend of mine, Eric Kerr, climbs mountains. He's a, a very well-known entrepreneur, but he also is a mountain climber. And he's climbed, he's climbed like uh, the Matterhorn, for example, where I think more than 500 people have died trying to climb the Matterhorn. And when we were, my wife and I go on these crazy hikes with him, we're not roped in and doing all that nonsense, but, but he said something interesting. We're going on this long hike and he looked at me and he said, he said, take smaller steps. I said, what? He said, the greatest mountain climbers take small steps because you use less of the big muscles. You save your energy for when you need it near the top, take small steps. And I thought, you know what? That's the thing about life. And I think what I would tell your listeners is Think about the small steps and then the big vision. And if you do those things together, the small steps and the big vision, I think you're going to get so much farther in life and you're going to have a, a, such a, a meaningful, important, well-lived life. Um, that that would be the one thing I would probably impart. I love that. Don't underestimate the, the how much time plays a role in even your dreams coming true and in a culture where we, we feel the pressure for it to come true now. Like most things don't happen that quickly. And so we, we give up. I, I love that. Break it down, small steps. Love the analogy as well. Thank you for that, man. Well, June, this has been awesome. Um, real quick, the book is called Beyond a Million, The Entrepreneur's Playbook for Expanding Wealth, Freedom, and Time. It's a fantastic read. Um, you look great on the cover. It's just a great photo of you too. <laughs> yeah, There's a funny story about that. I'll tell you another time. Oh, God, I love that. So everyone <laughs> should check it out wherever books are sold. Uh, uh, and where else can people find you online and, and find out more about what you do? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. I'm probably kind of lurking around all those areas a little bit here and there. That's awesome. And the website is jimdo.com uh, jimdowealth? Yeah, so uh, dowealth.com do is our private client service uh, done for you, virtual family office. Uh, yeah, my last name, D-E-W, and then the word wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H.com. Cool. So yeah, if you guys want to check out more of what Jim does there, if that's like, you feel like, man, this is really interesting to me, go check it out. And if nothing else, read the book. It's it's going to just blow your mind to help you think uh, differently as wealth building for the entrepreneur, which I think is very needed in this day and age. Jim, this is awesome. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your wisdom. And uh, so glad we could connect, brother. 
My pleasure, Graham. Great seeing you and great to spend time with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jim. He's a class act and a brilliant mind, and I'm honored to count him as a friend. Be sure to check out his book, Beyond a Million, The Entrepreneur's Playbook for Expanding Wealth, Freedom, and Time. It's a really good book. Um, and if you want to know more about what he does and the services he provides, check out dowealth.com. That's D-E-W wealth.com. And as always, honored to spend some of my day and time with you here. If you haven't picked up your 30-day online income jumpstart guide, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'm linking to it below, or you can go to grahamcochran.com slash jumpstart. Have an amazing week. Enjoy serving people in your business, and I'll see you on another episode real soon.